coming to you live from inside the globe, perched high atop the Bugle Planet building in sunny Gotham City. It's Hey Kids Comics with two guys who are always ready to seduce the innocent, your hosts, Andrew Farmer and the Jedi Cole Houston. And now it's time for Hey Kids Comics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. I am Andrew Farmer. With me as always, the Jedi, Cole Houston. Cole! Hello, everybody! There he is. Hey! So we're back uh, for a first official comic book episode after the great uh, quarantining of 2020. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, how are you doing, Cole? I'm doing real well. I'm, I'm happy to be back uh, doing something all official-like and... Uh... Yeah, this is something, this is an issue we had had planned prior to, I think, uh, the world going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and I'm excited for this one because I took a different approach. Like, I could have just picked. So, wait, what? Well, first of all, why don't you tell everybody what we're reading? Okay, this is, good lord, um, how far behind am I? Uh... We're in bad news books, I believe. Yeah, well, I, I'm just trying to remember what issue we're on because I've been listening. To, I'm up into the 80s oh, that's now right, you're report, you're of the the 300 yourself. some issues, yes. And I'm trying to uh, recall. This should be 349. 349. Okay, I thought we were heading into the neighborhood of 350, but yeah. I, I have honestly completely lost track, and I'm so immersed in our past right now, <laughs> uh, which is, by the way, nothing short of amazing. <laughs> uh, there, I just today. As promised, I don't have my notes with me, but I, I promised to uh, drop in a, a little bit of the, uh, little bit of past issues every issue going forward. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so much, and it was somewhere in the '80s where we were, in the, um, what was it reimagining the legends or something like that? Rethinking the legends, that was it. And uh, it was in one of the issues. Bobby Blakey, the amountable Bobby Blakey, was part of every single issue of that arc, which basically cemented his place at the time as the most prolific guest. Yes. Yes. I don't know how that lasted. We, that remains to be seen, but, uh, for the most part that at the time that he won the title for that period of history as a result, but we were talking about just the often inexplicable changes that occur in comics often out of the blue. And in this particular case, about specifically uh, one Betsy Braddock, is that right? Uh, A.K.A. Psylocke. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And her 80s, 90s, whatever it was, I guess, 90s uh, spontaneous um, change of... Uh, race? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Full-on full race change. And... Um, from a uh, you know Victorian era hairstyle, purple-haired British, British princess, girl, yeah, to a purple-haired Japanese ninja chick, right. And I made the observation that in hearing it, I think probably the first time since these words came out of my mouth, I have no recollection of saying this. But I said, I'm probably paraphrasing here, something to the effect of. The only other time I can think of where something went spontaneously from British to Asian 
was Hong Kong. <laughs> oh, Cole. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. That's good. In fact, yeah, you had uh, made the remark that uh, it must have been social commentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure, we'll say that. We'll say that that's what it was about, and not yeah. some insane idea from uh, whoever was in the bullpen of the X the X Men's bullpen at that point, saying, "You know what this needs." <laughs> oh man, I, I want to say before we get started, and and I know we have a lot of ground to cover. I want to say this, and in, in regards to what's going on in the world as a comic book podcast, um, I am going to be touching on a book later. That um, actually touching all over that book. Yeah, well, I have, and it was unfortunate that I did, um, mm. because it's really a um, it's it's really a touchstone for me in terms of what's going on in the world. Because a younger me spent a lot of time defending something like this, and then as they got older, saw it for what it was, which was complete and total ass. So, um, <laughs> you know, all of our heroes um, are are revolutionaries. From your Han Solos to your even your Captain Americas at certain points, your your Supermans, your Batmans, your Spidermans, they they all fight for for the little guy. They all stand up and want everyone to be heard, and uh, we support that. So and we're not going to thread the needle. Just you know, keep keep organizing, keep getting better, keep speaking out, keep um, keep fighting for what you believe in out there. Um, we don't stand for fat. We smash fascists. You know, we're cap. We say you move. Um, that's what we do. Um, that being said, that's all we're going to say. We're not a political podcast, uh, even no. though we're, I'm going to talk about dumb politics later. Dumb, dumb, dumb politics later that I fell for, that I fell. That's OK. That's what <laughs> I want to say about this episode is I could have gone a couple ways, Cole. I could have just gone with bad ideas, right? Books that were bad. And there are a few that maybe I will, but all in all, what I went for are the books that hurt me. Okay. Like the books that I, the, the bad news books that, that I found myself reading and, and hurt and, and hurt my heart. So, um, so show me on the spinner rack yeah, where it hurt you. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, so that's where I am. So what, what is the – so that being said, the impetus this, of this episode. This is the Bad News Books episode, and what I wanted to talk about was some of the worst comics ever. Yes. And that's a, that's a painting with a very broad brush because what I have in mind is, you know, not – this isn't an, an image issue. Uh, <laughs> I don't have any image talk books, about actually. Image comics. Yeah. What we're, I really want to talk about here is some books that, while I feel very strongly, uh, you know, again, not to be too uh, political or anything, are by their very nature constitutionally protected. Sure. While we still have one of those. What? Um, but are just. It, it's again, as we often say on this show, it, you, I just get all Ian Malcolm-y and it's just like uh, that's where you transmute um, life, <laughs> finding a way. Yes. Uh, but the uh, <laughs> yeah, Ian Ian uh, Malcolmides. <laughs> but the thing that is, what I'm getting at in that regard is, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yes. 
And there are so many um, just bad little indies that almost nobody even ever heard of. But they're just bad, bad. Well, and the thing that the thing about that, and you're right, they are bad. The thing about it that struck just me, poor taste, poor everything. Yeah. The thing just that struck one. me was how many of those bad books crept into the big two. Oh Did, yeah, there were there were instances there as well. You'd think it was just strictly the indies, but it wasn't. And it was everything from the big indies to the just the little never heard of nobodies. Yeah. So, so fire I really away to to play around in that playground a little bit. And I think an important place to lead, uh, a good jumping off point, uh, because I found an article from a few years ago where apparently this, uh, this book is, uh, was making a comeback. Uh, I'm speaking of the work of one Mike Diana uh, of, at the time, uh, little uh, Largo, Florida, who became back in 1994 – the only American ever convicted of artistic obscenity. <laughs> I know porn when I see it, and sir, this is porn. <laughs> <laughs> Diana was convicted on the basis of his little underground comic, Boiled Angel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like if you took the most offensive, worst Robert Crumb ever melded it with uh, Ed Big Daddy Roth uh, <laughs> hot rod style. Yeah. And then Benjamin buttoned it into about uh, the art uh, artistic sophistication of a nine-year-old. <laughs> you have Tony Diana's Boiled Angel, and it was issues number seven and number eight, A-T-E, by the way, that basically uh, landed him in jail. And I remember uh, that also made him a, a post, pretty much a poster boy for uh, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and quite rightly. Right. Because not only was he convicted of artistic obscenity, which is just the mere thought of it is frightening. Yes. That that's a thing for anybody. Uh, but the fact that in his sentencing, I remember just being aghast. The judge ruled that as part of his sentencing, he could not um, even draw <laughs> anything during the period of his sentence or probation or whatever it was. He was not even allowed to draw pictures of anything. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, when you and, and you know, if you look at his work, it's. It would be offensive if it wasn't so poorly realized. Right. But the themes are remarkably outrageous. And, you know, I just, in a way, finally seeing this after all these years, I never really thought to pursue it before uh, this show. Um, it, it's the sort of stuff that bored adolescents draw. Yeah, right, right. <clears throat> and I remember... Uh, as a kid, like drawing these horribly gory, graphic death scene things, and I grew up just fine. And I thought, you know, God forbid anyone had ever got a hold of one, then I'd been off, you know, clapped in the madhouse. Right. <laughs> but you also didn't, as an adult, 
progress those things. Yeah, that's true. I did not continue and then try to publish them uh, as uh, would be quite within the rights as an American citizen, uh, except in Largo, Florida. <laughs> that's yeah. Um, so I have one that I pulled that des- that one hundred percent deserves. It's in the same vein as as Diana's uh, seminal work there. But it does. But it reached a higher, like, grander mainstream audience, and that is none other. Something I've wanted to talk about so many times on this show, um, <laughs> the entire run, and I don't think it deserves. This thing has it over a, a hundred issues at this point, okay? And it deserves an entire, like, whether it's a special issue of this show or a standard issue of this show, it deserves it. And that is Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose. Cole, are you familiar oh, with Tarot? My God, I <laughs> Tarot, if memory serves, uh, came out when I was working for Diamond Comic Distributors. It's been out for a while, so yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, God. So, Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose, is sort of one of those greg landy cheesecakey chaos comic period <laughs> cheesecake that's the word i was struggling. yeah um it was like devil's cheesecake yes it was <laughs> like devil's food cheesecake devil's food like just giant buxom witches um i will say this with those uh, milo Minara big asses yes <laughs> but i will say this about the book they 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 took the idea of like they made the they made the the main male character like this bumbling fool hero that has to constantly be saved during a time period when that was not happening like they took a lot of they they I think they came at it with the best intentions for what they were trying to do but nobody told them to stop and they just kept going <laughs> so you end on with these concepts, concepts like so, so the story is it's it's pretty cut and dry. It's about a witch and her witch friends fighting evil and ghosts and shit. And you know, the, witch friends, witch, witch friends. But two of the biggest kind of stories that need to be told. Um, so it was in '99, Cole. So that's when it was released, and. Jim Ballant, who did Catwoman for a really long time, is the one that um, is is the guy that started her up. But there, there is a partic- one particular story that that deserves mentioning. Two actually, one is um, there was a, a a particular scene where for three entire pages, um, an eel devours uh, Taro's vagina. So that's a thing that happens in this book. <laughs> In that same in that same book, though, um, a naked tarot uh, tarot the the witch um, fights a shark with another shark, and this is <laughs> these are j- like 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 giant... like using the the shark as a uh, a weapon. Yes, to... and these are giant bosomed women fighting. You know, wearing like weird like uh, eyes wide shut masks. <laughs> yeah, that was uh they they had those sort of weird uh masquerade ball type of masks going down. But there is one story in particular that I do want to touch on. 
and it spawned these seven words in comics that will live in infamy, uh, live in infamy forever. And that is, you've got to get out of here. Your vagina is haunted. So that is a line from an issue of Tarot, and that's why I wanted to talk about it today. Um, the Skeleton Man is Tarot's boyfriend, and this comes from issue 53 of Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose, if you want to be very specific. Um, the story is the Skeleton Man gets summoned to the crossroads to convene with a group of ghosts, because that's his superpower, is talking to ghosts. Okay. So he goes out there. The, the ghosts that he's confronted with are the ghosts of these nurses, and they're these nurses that, you know, performed weird surgeries on people, um, uh, cosmetic surgeries. So, this book is wild. I can't begin. Like I said, it needs an hour. It needs an hour. And they're yeah. the bad guys. Okay, the witches are the bad guys. Um, and and basically, they come back for revenge on people. But uh, one of them, because of vaginal reconstructive surgery, um, just is, they all are bleeding from the places, from the surgeries that they perform. So if you had, like, collagen implants in your lips, your, your face was constantly bleeding. If you had a face tuck, like, your eyes are constantly bleeding. So... It, this woman is just bleeding from her vagina constantly because that's where the sur that she did vaginal reconstructive surgery. Um, <laughs> so then, so she goes after Samantha Brown who had the surgery that she performed. That was her revenge. She gets into the body. She possesses the body of, of, Samantha Brown, I said Sandra, I think, Samantha Brown, responding <laughs> to Skeleton Man saying, Samantha Brown, you have to get out of here. Your vagina is haunted. That is the book. That is the first book that I chose. It is an indie, just so everybody knows. Um, it, it is 100% an indie. It's by Broadsword Comics. There are a lot of these comic books out there. Uh, and uh, it's a book that is so crosses the line in so many ways. It's almost worth reading like because of just the insane stuff, because like you said, the alchemy of Ian Malcolm said, nobody said just because you can make this and put this in a book doesn't mean you should. And they just uh, keep doing it. Oh yes. And it's, it's frightening and, and strangely beautiful all at once. And it, and you're just left to question why. Yeah, like I can't, I can't even begin to explain like the everything. Like I said, we need an hour, but I just wanted the first book that I talk about to include these seven words that every comic book fan wants to hear, which is, "You have to get out of here. Your <laughs> vagina is haunted." <laughs> All right, I'm done with that one now. So, what do you got? Well, I, you know, the thing about it is uh, this will probably bounce around quite a bit because uh, from haunted vaginas or anything, um, <laughs> you know, grotesquely. Uh, That's the worst it's going to get for me in terms yeah, of grossness, just so you grotesquely, know. Grotesquely uh, vaginal in, in nature. Um, there was a book that ran for many, many years. I actually need to find out. Um, 
to, to get a handle on exactly how long it ran. Uh, from Avatar Press, who was, uh, you know, they made quite a name for themselves during the indie boom when a lot of crap was being churned out. But uh, first, the, the premiere was in uh, 1987. Okay. Uh, had art by Tim Vigil, who I believe did uh, ran from '87 to Good God 2012, but only had 15 issues in all those years. And that is one Faust. Okay. Faust was kind of uh, Satan's Wolverine. <laughs> That's a that's a really good explanation of that character. <laughs> I just, it, it's uh it's I I have a passing familiarity and I I cracked a few covers just to see and that's how I know some of what was going on, but like you know the very first issue um, is the presumably Faust character um, trying his dead level best to reproduce his favorite pre code horror. Okay. Comics, uh, because he's got the uh, severed head of some guy, uh, which he's holding up, and um, but he's got the he basically has the red uh, the the away game version of Dark Claw's costume. Okay. From the Amalgam universe. Yes. <laughs> With these two giant Wolverine claws to, uh, jutting out from gauntlet on his arms and. Um, you know, he's, he's sporting the, the classic Batman gray bodysuit and a bright crimson, uh, pointy cowl and long flowing clo uh, cape rather. And, um, they, uh, basically, uh, it's just an exercise in gore. Yeah. Uh, presumably it had some sort of story. I noticed on Wikipedia, apparently, uh, there was uh, some hitmen who worked for some Mephistophelian character, and uh, I stopped reading. But I, <laughs> I just stopped. You know, you spoke of three panels of an eel. Yeah, yeah and that did happen, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that the, the one time that I cracked one of these open, and, and I, of course, naturally, it falls open to the page. I think it was almost like a splash page. Uh, depicting a character uh, effectively uh, engaging in cannibalistic cunnilingus. Oh, good <laughs> lord. Uh, essentially having bitten that entire uh, lady area um, out of a lady. Oh, God. Just like, you know, uh, Jaws style. Another instance of why. Why yeah. did anybody let you do this? With a you know maniacal grin, it was like uh, Guy Fieri before he hit. You know, it just <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of doing that Guy Fieri leaning into it type. Well, of... now we're gonna get sued by Guy Fieri. Right, exactly. We're gonna we're gonna owe reparations to Flavortown now. <laughs> That's right. Damn it. Yeah, it was sort of like a no. I'm not gonna. God, should I go there? Why not? Kind of a fishy flavor to Oh, God. <laughs> a, oh, cool. With a kind of coppery aftertaste. But in, in all serious, it was just like, what in the flying God's fuck is this all about? <laughs> and that's, I think that that's what the word, like, 
the worst of these books is, is like you just they're not great, but you're reading them just anyway. And then all of a sudden you hit something and you're just like, I'm sorry, what? What? Where? What? Where? Where did that? Why? Why? John, what in John Waters hell did you think you were doing? And the thing about it is that this was published in a period where very often a lot of indies. I don't know if this was the case with Faust because I can't find anything other than just my own personal speculation. But, I mean, from what I read and, and what I saw with the uh, 15 issues in 25 years, uh, <laughs> <laughs> speaks volumes. By, and I'm racking my brain. I can't remember who it was, but there was at least one, if not a couple, of indie books that were delayed because their printers refused to print the next issue. Well, that's not shocking. Yeah. They were afraid that they were going to get, uh, what was the, uh, what well, was somebody's the... going to come, like a, a crowd of Frankenstein uh, villagers are come, and these places are like a tinderbox. They're mostly got a bunch of paper laying around. Yeah, what's the what's the Stephen King short story about the haunted printing press in the basement? Oh, wow. That's probably what they thought was going to happen. <laughs> Jesus. I know, it's just... It, it was it was a wild period, uh, really to say was. the least. It really was. It was in it was an insane period where people could get away with just doing anything, and they did, and they did. Oh yeah, I mean they were literally throwing the spaghetti against the wall, and, and it was like spaghetti and and raviolis and, and tortellinis and and the ziti and and those like. Uh, you know, uh, what do we have for dinner? Uh, we had unicorn-shaped uh, craft dinner tonight because, like, right during the height of panic buying. Yeah. The only – I wanted to pick up some macaroni and cheese to have around the house, you know. Sure, you, as, as you do. As one does, yes. And what do I uh, – the only thing I could find was Paw Patrol and unicorn shapes. <laughs> Did you get them both? I did. Nice. God, I did. Good, good, good. Um, okay, let's bring it. I'm going to bring it back into uh, a little more couth, I guess, a little more refined, but yeah. bad. Um, this one's hard for me to talk about um, because I understand the impetus and I understand what what was what was the the attempt in this, but I don't what what the part that really bothers me about this is the execution um so there's a book and it's one of my favorite comics period and i want to talk about one particular issue um it's one of my favorite comics of all times and i know that this is going to um this is going to hit a little close to home for you too cole because the comic in question is ex machina number 40 ex machina is one of my favorite comics ex machina is written by Brian K. Vaughn. If, if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, it's because you don't listen to this show ever. Yeah, because exactly. The man I didn't listen to the collector sector back yeah, in the day. The man uh, created Saga, and it is fantastic. Um, between <laughs> him and him and Fiona Staples, Saga. Yeah, he's he does. And this book is no different. The book is a story of a man who. Um, Basically gets vicinity hit by a meteorite from space, and do and in doing so is given power over machines. 
he uses this to fight crime early on in his career, and then 9-11 happens. Oh, wow. And in the book, he personally thwarts the second plane. In doing so, he gets elected mayor of New York. And the main thrust of the story is um, superhero becomes mayor of New York. And what does that mean? One of the things it means is you can't use your your powers. So, you know, but and yet he still has to, you know, he still has to use his powers to do certain yeah. things. Um, you know, and there's other people that have similar powers to him, you know, and he has to put on the put on the costume and fight that guy, even being the mayor. But, you know, there's a lot of politics involved in the book and a lot of flashbacks to his early career. And it's just very Brian K. Vaughn. It's very story driven. <laughs> it's very developed. It's very, very, very good. Issue 40, though, however, <laughs> <laughs> took me, ripped me straight out of the comic and left a really bad taste in my mouth as a bad news book. And here's why um, Brian K. Vaughn is idolizes certain comic creators as we all do. Yeah. Um, in particular, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison. And I think we've mentioned Alan Moore before on this show. When I go back and yes, well, and, it, to <laughs> and it shines through in his work, right? It's very, very, it's, it's very creative the way that he takes stories and twists them and presents them from different angles and makes you think about things you haven't thought about. Um, but one thing that Al, that Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, especially Grant Morrison in his, um, in his animal man run is, is famous for is injecting himself into his own books. Okay. So, so he's like, whoever wrote that shadows, the empire <laughs> heavily, <laughs> ladling himself in yes 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 don't don't attack don't attack dash randall <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't, there's no need for that his name is prince Sheezor. um she's who knew who knew yeah uh, eric eric mccormick you can do no wrong my friend <laughs> exactly <laughs> did you guys know that uh will from will and grace started an independent comic book uh nerd movie back in <laughs> <laughs> It's so good. Cole, what you need is a Trixie. Um, God, I gotta, ah, I gotta I, go watch that movie again. I haven't seen it in so I, I long. I know, I haven't either, and it's one of my all-time favorites. I just gush about it. If you ever wanted to see Will Shatner do a rap to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, this is the movie for you. Um, so back to the book. The impetus of the story is... Um, is the, the 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 main character in the story is um is going to re- is going to release his biography. By the way, his ma- his name is Mayor Mitchell Hundred, which is a great comic book name. <laughs> um, he's going to do a biography of his life, but he's not going to do it in book form. He's going to do it in comic book form. So he proceeds to, you know, bring you know, open this cattle call for all these comic creators to do his biography. And um, the, the, the issue okay. <laughs> opens on the creative team from Ex Machina, which is, by the way, is not only Brian K. Vaughn, but Tony Harris. So another great name. Um, Brian K. Vaughn and Tony Harris appear in the comic throughout the comic as themselves, as comic creators. You know, Jack and... Uh... 
<laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Jack and Steve and I used to do that sort of thing all the time. No, that's exactly the point. But and, and, We and, and, went to the Fantastic Four wedding and got turned away. And, and in if it was that, because the payoff at the end is actually pretty good. Okay. okay? The, the way that the book it, the way that this book ends is actually pretty pretty fun but the the issue that I have with it is this man is one of the seminal comic book creators of our time and he introduces himself into this book <clears throat> under this pretense and then uses this pretense to tell his 9/11 story as himself in a comic book oh, that is okay so it becomes his own soapbox. Yeah, where a long way around to it, a long way around to a soapbox that he has anyway. And that's a special kind of privilege that maybe you don't need to use. And it left me with a bad taste in my mouth. This man is a this man is a giant comic creator, right, with a very popular book that he could write no end of op eds for anybody. You want to write it for The New York Times? I'm Brian K. Vaughn. I'm a, yeah, I'm a, exactly. I'm a famous New York comic creator. Here's 200 words or 2,000 words on 9/11 and its effect on me. But instead, he injected it into this book, and there were panels. And, but it just so it felt very self-aggrandizing because yeah. you know, the camera was third person on him. He's telling his story through himself looking into the barrel of the camera to tell his story and, and why ultimately very uh hyper meta yeah and that you know he creates the book becomes a creator within the book and then uses his own creation to have him his in the book self tell his autobiographical tale and you know it just now i see where you're coming from because it does it's sort of like he has derailed your entertainment for his own pontifications. But not only not only my own entertainment, but the entire run of the book is Brian K. Vaughn's 9-11 story. Yeah. Told through the eyes of this mayor who, you know, who given, you know, it's Brian K. Vaughn's wish fulfillment. What if I could have stopped 9-11? You know, and he's yeah, telling I his story, coming, his because... guilt his fear, it's all coming through those pages anyway. And then we had to pull back and look at this guy who created this book, tell me about how he felt after he's told me for 40 issues prior to this, and then again for the last 10, how it felt. Well, the thing about it is, you can tell that very tale through your principal character or characters, or through another character. And you don't have to insert yourself personally into that to say, well, in addition to everything that I've poured out from myself into these characters here's a character of me telling you even more right right and the so it just felt kind of gross yeah in that respect i get it he has a story to tell his own personal story i just don't think you tell it from within the pages of your own book because that is a level of um privilege that nobody else from 9-11 really had or used. Yeah. You know what I mean? This wasn't like, like, sure, people wrote biographies, you know, their their 9-11 stories wrote books about them. People wrote op-eds. People, you know, John Stewart went on The Daily Show and talked about it. But he wasn't writing a fictionalized account 
of it and then included himself in the fictionalized account exactly. as himself telling his his story. Now, I will say this. After all of that, throughout the book, the book ends with them not getting the job and the job going to Jim Lee and Mark Millar, <laughs> which was a really good self-effacing moment, yeah. which I would expect from Brian K. Vaughn. And, and it was almost like it was an apology because he knew what he did. Like, I have to do this, and here's my apology to you for doing it. But still, like, dude, come on. Like, so that for me was I'm a bad I'm not going to give myself that level of power. Yes. Ultimately. So, so for me, that was my, that was a bad news book. No, for I that can, reason. I can see where that would be. And, and I'm sure you aren't the only person, the only reader who came away with that exact same feeling. And, and I felt bad for feeling that way, you know, because everybody's allowed to have their emotions and their story about 9-11. Everybody does. Yeah. But I just don't think that that was the right soapbox to, to climb up on to tell that story for yourself. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's creator owned. You're the creator. You get to do what you want. But you, but again, nobody said maybe this isn't the right venue for you. Exactly. Okay, I'm done. That just it just really I it's been in it's been stuck in my craw since I read it and I needed to talk about it and this was a good <laughs> venue to do that. Well good. No, I, I think it was important to uh to be able to explore that and also give some insight into not only that particular title but where it was taken creatively. And and please don't misconstrue the fact that I this book is well worth – every issue is well worth reading, and it is a great 9-11 story. It really is, but this particular issue just just killed me reading it, man. <laughs> I can I, – I certainly empathize with you on that because you are taking that journey and up to a point, and then all of a sudden you get this sort of like extra heavy-duty injection of Vaughn into the – Right. Into the plot, so uh... – it becomes a little, like you say, a little self-aggrandizing, a little too much of look at me and my personal uh, yes, yes. suffering uh, in the midst of all this, and a, kind of a hyper-validation. Correct. All right, what do you got, man? Let's get let's let's keep the ball rolling here. All right. Well, th there's a, a kind of a two-part tale here. Okay. That begins. Uh, I say two-part because you have a comic book um, that was deliberately meant to be the most, let's say, savage um, interpretation of the traditional superhero genre. Uh, I've often said, for example, that, uh, you know, uh, at least in part, especially at the very beginning before it kind of derailed on itself – uh, Supreme Power, J Michael J. Straczynski's uh, Supreme Power, uh, is the best, or at least if it's not the best JLA story, it certainly has the best Superman, the best take on Superman ever in his take on Hyperion from the Squadron Supreme. Yes. You know, set outside of the greater Marvel Universe. There is no other Marvel Universe, at least initially. I think later they decided they had to uh, beat DC to the punch by another five or ten years on insinuating Watchmen into the DC universe. God, yeah. Uh, but I think that there was like um, they insinuated that Squadron Supreme into the Ultimates, if I'm not mistaken. 
But uh, way back in August of 1990, we saw the very first issue of a five-issue miniseries produced by King Hell Press. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, Rick Veitch's... Veitch? Uh, I think it's Veitch. Veitch. Rick Veitch's uh, seminal piece, <laughs> Brat Pack. Oh, God. Okay. All right, let's go. Brad Pack took the tropes of the Justice League and made them. It's sort of like this is about the same time that uh, Ben Edlund was introducing uh, the Sidekicks Lounge mm -hmm. and the Tick, which later became uh, a prominent feature in uh, the the live action, the, the Patrick Warburton uh, live action. Yeah. Uh, and it's basically the story of your your sidekick, the tough life of being the the boy boy or girl sidekick. Right. And you had it follows the uh, the tale of um, judge, jury, and his sidekick, uh, Kid Vicious. Okay. There was Midnight Mink and Chippy. Which is your the uh, most uh, LBG? Uh, forgive me, I'm not going to try uh, to do the the litany there because I'll get it wrong and piss people off. And it's purely accidental. It's not for lack of respect or anything. I just. Uh, <laughs> but you know, he was basically the queerest Batman ever. Yeah. Uh, you had uh, was it Moon Mistress or something like that? Yeah, Moon Mistress and Luna, and um, oh, what was it uh, King Rad and Wild Boy? <laughs> and King Rad was kind of your uh, Punisher slash Green Arrow type. Yeah, and uh, Luna was your Wonder Woman, or your, was it Moon Mistress was your Wonder Woman type, and. Uh, Judge Jury was your exaggerated Batman, or not Batman, more like a Punisher, I guess, because he ran around in like a executioner's hood. Yeah, great big mallet that had guilty imprinted, embossed in it, in you know backward. So when he hit you with it, it yeah, yeah. you uh, it was like a big deadly rubber stamp of guilt, and that was. Uh, and it took you through, like, I think at one point, uh, Kid Vicious had to crawl across broken glass carrying Judge Jury on his back. <laughs> uh, Moon Mistress uh, at one point confronts a criminal, and she's got this belt with all these little drawstring bags that her, have her treats and her treasures. Okay. And he lucks out because she pulls a treat and does, is not, uh, does not become her latest treasure which were basically the uh, testicles of her. Uh, oh, great. They were cleaved from, from their bodies with her massive sword. And so, you know, it it was deliberately gritty and edgy and made no... Uh, yeah. You know, it made no bones about that. And um, I, I love the, uh, the Wikipedia... Uh, Midnight Mink, a homosexual vigilante and his sidekick Chippy, 
Judge Jury, a fascist white supremacist steroid-using murderous vigilante, and his sidekick, Kid Vicious. Moon Mistress, a man-hating warrior woman, and her sidekick, Luna. And King Rad, an armored hero bent on living the ultimate rush, and his sidekick, Wild Boy. So, but the thing about it is, it didn't pulling punches and you kind of knew that from the outset there was a, a feeling that this was going to be uh a, a granted overly realized with you know and and poking um poking the bear on a lot of things it was like, going to, it was going to be edgy for the sake of being they yeah, were going to they exactly. were going to push it push that envelope uh, pedophilia commercialism uh, apparently, uh, according to what I'm reading here, it was partly influenced by the the whole Jason Todd uh, dial it up kill fest. Yeah, from I think DC. that's responsible for a lot of shit. That... Yeah, there were a lot of reactionary productions, as well. right? And this was certainly among the uh, the, the very the many uh, thing. I, mean, I forget was it Doctor Blasphemy? I think was the uh, <laughs> It was like the gimp from Pulp Fiction with a a cartoon cuss word motif on his black oh, lip, um, Lord. on his uh, rubber man suit from Amer- was it uh, American Horror Story season one? Yes. <laughs> he had a a vertical zipper down the front. It had the the big uh, Gene Simmons tongue sticking out. Oh man. And I think it even like took cues from Warriors, if I remember correctly, because it was like some kind of recurring theme of a call-in radio show that Blasphemy would call into on a constant. And so, okay, that was gritty, edgy, god-awful for the sake of being gritty, edgy, god-awful. Right. You know, you saw it coming, so... The, the the Superman of this universe was hinted at as the Maximortal. Okay. So then along comes the Maximortal. Also by Veitch, Veitch, Veitch. It's a different book? Yes, it was a mini, okay. separate miniseries that concentrated on the Maximortal character. And so if you thought... That Brat Pack was gritty and awful and edgy and hyper violent. Uh, you were probably curled up in a fetal position after you got through an issue or two of the Max Immortal, which just became so ridiculous for the sake of being what it was that I, I had to walk away from it. Oh, really? I mean, Brad Pack is. Rat Pack was like the celery of comics. Okay. Doesn't taste good. It's you can't digest it. But it's you know, it's still something that was recommended. <laughs> it's really best if what you do is you take the uh like the trade paperback or individual issues of Brad Pack, spread peanut butter on it and put raisins. There you go. Make ants on a log out of it. <laughs> exactly. At least there's some satisfaction at the end. But it it takes the, the Superman trope of the alien infant arriving on Earth, and it immediately uh, 
like tears half the face off of Farmer Brown and then rides him around like the, some sort of like Edgar Rice Burroughsy uh, Mars creature. Yes. And and it just is a roller coaster ride into Shitsville after that. <laughs> it's like being immersed in that weird. And I I just heard this reference on a issue of the show that I was listening to, but I, it is rather appropriately timed. That weird floating cesspit from Waterworld. Oh yeah. <laughs> like being tossed in there for a, for a while until the smokers arrive. And I, there's just there's nothing you can you can't coat it with nacho cheese or uh, you know uh, braise it in a white wine sauce. There's nothing you can do to this to uh, to make it remotely digestible. I honestly can't tell you. But it, it was also decidedly unmemorable. Yeah. Beyond being just obviously meant to be the Superman. You know what if Superman was written by. Uh, Boiled Angel guy. Right. What What if Superman was? What if you know? It's just the same. It's the same rehashed thing that we've seen for God sixty years. Yeah, and some do it right. Some do it beautifully, and some just try to take it to this insane uh, extreme that it. I, I think distasteful is the only way I could describe it. I. I try to keep a pretty open mind about a lot of stuff in comics but there's there's just no redeeming quality to this i'm and hopefully somebody will calm me down on it and say you know you should go back and, and re-examine it maybe look at it through different eyes but uh, uh you know these eyes have seen a lot of comics and right right um all right well i've got my last one um and i know you have a problem with this already because we've talked about it but it took me a while to come around to see it for the for the kind of the crap that it is and i think that it's crap because marvel has their issue with events and we've talked about this right like marvel for some reason cannot do events dc has events in the bag but marvel just has a real issue with make with creating good events and making them worthwhile and making them you know making them stick and making them decent <laughs> and the event that I want to talk about and the issue that I want to that I want to talk about the bad news book in general is secret empire do you remember secret empire cole Oh my God, that that rings very familiar. So the story of Secret Empire is, it all comes from an event called Avenger Standoff. Avenger Standoff is this idea that somehow someone got a piece of the cosmic cube, of course, because that's that's magic. Yeah. In terms in terms of Marvel, it's the speed force of Marvel. You can do anything with it. Um, someone got the cosmic cube. It became sentient and became a character in and of itself called Kobik. Okay? So through Kobik, um, S.H.I.E.L.D. and a couple of other um, Marvel mainstays created an, a prison in the negative zone by which they would toss these supervillains and then give those supervillains a normal Mayberry life. 
they would recreate these supervillains into normal Mayberian kind of, you know, 1950s style neighborhood characters. And there they would live for eternity to serve out their sentence, not knowing any better. Okay. Until the Avengers found out about it and infiltrated it and broke it up because, you know, it's unconstitutional and, and all of the things, the reasons that you would not want that kind of prison to exist. Um, but in doing so, the Red Skull gets a hold of Kobik and, um, and, the, and by way of Kobik, the Cosmic Cube powers and time bullets or, or uh, <laughs> reality bullets Captain America and the Marvel Universe as a whole, the history of the Marvel Universe into making Captain America a Hydra sleeper agent for his entire career. And, you know, Secret Empire is that. It's it's Hydra's Secret Empire using Captain America to infiltrate the system and then eventually set up this giant Captain, you know, this giant takeover of the world that Hydra's going to do through using this, this facsimile of Captain America that they... Yeah. Making Captain America a fascist. <laughs> you remember this. The whole, you know, Captain America uh, saying, hail Hydra and throwing somebody oh, out of the plane. Yeah, and everybody going just bug nuts, ape shit crazy. Yeah, because all it ended up being was a, you know, another cash grab by Marvel using sensationalism. When my issue with it is, and never has it been more in, in stark relief than it is today, how many stories could you have told that had bearing, that had weight, that could have been a, a, a Jack Kirby, Stanley, Steve Ditko level social commentary, and instead you chose to do this? Exactly. This is what you chose to do. God, Captain America, the, the, the Captain America we know and love still was out there in the, in the negative zone. To wit, all the characters had to go get him and bring him back and remind him of who he is, at which point, you know, he fights Hydra and Hydra Captain America and wins, and then the world is set right again through the power of the Cosmic Cube and nothing happens. When I fight Captain America, Captain America always wins. <laughs> so, my issue with it is just that. And it's the same, The my comic book issue with it is, Marvel just cannot Get in, not since Asgardian Wars, I think might be the last <laughs> event that was worth a damn that Marvel did when the X-Men went to Asgard and became Asgardians and Cypher became the chief librarian oh, yeah. for Asgard. Like, that was a hella good event. Oh, yeah. But not since then can I really think of an event that has been worth its weight, that has had meaning and merit. Um, we've talked in at length about the secret wars and how ridiculous it is. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, we've talked at length about any of these giant, massive crossovers that they've done and how they don't, nothing, nothing, there's no bearing. If anybody has an argument with me about one that was actually good and had any kind of weight to it, I'm willing to listen and I will read the shit out of it if it's good. But my bigger problem is, Comics are supposed to be about commentary. X-Men, Spider-Man, Captain America, of all things, to include in there, you know, um, about fighting fascism, about punching Nazis, you know. And what we have here 
is a shock value story about what happens if the Red Skull actually gets the Cosmic Cube and gets his, you know, gets his desires and makes a world of fascism using Captain America. And it just, I defended it for a long time. Exactly. I defended it as a, um, as an alternate history comic, like, Oh, I'm, I, I like, you know, you, you know, man in the man in the high castle has a story to tell and it's interesting. And, and this is really no different. And then I realized that I'm being an idiot and it actually sucks real hard. <laughs> so that's my last bad news book. Don't read it because it's bad. I'm done. I'm off of that soapbox. That's my last one. Cole, bring us home. You got one to bring us home with. I, I've got uh, lots of stuff to bring us home. All with, right. But, bring uh... us on in. Just keep going. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there was a period where bad news books abounded um, uh, from everything from like the TNA books that probably sold reasonably well because they were TNA books yeah. to uh, bad parodies and stuff. And I think one of the worst was uh, Daffy Kadaffy. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Let's see if I can find some data on uh Yes, Daffy Kadaffy, Malice in Wonderland was the uh, the actual title. Okay. 1986. So, you know, at that time, Omar Kadaffy was still pretty much at the height of his powers. Sure. And the running joke was no one seemed to know exactly how to spell Kadaffy. I remember a Saturday Night Live where they were showing off a litany of Kadaffy um, spellings of the... Uh, now late dictator, but uh, I'm trying to see. There's not much. It's hard to find because uh, at first I had to pinpoint how exactly they spelled Gaddafi. They uh, went with the uh, Q-A-D-D-A-F-I okay. version. <laughs> and I remember picking this up because it looked like it might be something interesting. And there were, you know, arguably there were a few really good uh, parody comics out there. And this was not one of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, I'm almost tempted to uh, to see if I can order a copy from Mile High Comics since ever, all their back issues are 50% off if you use DC Sucks. Oh, God, yeah, that needs to be – you're working on something there, right? Yeah, we're going to do – I've got to do an editorial piece on DC. I just did not want to chew up any of our time to record this on that. Um, unfortunately, they don't have that in stock. But I remember the, the thing was droll and uh, pedestrian in its humor – very sophomoric humor, and uh, to make matters worse, or you know, kind of the point that just sort of killed it was the um, scene at some point in the book where basically there is a sheep uh, seductively offering its hindquarters. Oh Lord. Yeah, it's sort of like, okay, this uh, that's enough of that. <laughs> and that's enough. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're out. So, yeah, that, that's, that was one of the, the bigger bad news books. Um, there's sort of a, an honorable mention that goes to um, a sequel 
as it were, a, a spinoff. I kind of had to look to see. There was a book that came out uh, that was a great parody uh, that I've talked about before of uh, Frank Miller's uh, The Dark Knight Returns. Okay. And called um, Nat Rat, The Dark Nat Returns. Okay. And it was basically, you know, kind of a, uh, a funny animal um, book. You had anthropomorphic animals and uh, Boo Swain was the becomes the gnat rat he becomes a gnat <laughs> to uh, invoke annoyance or something in his enemies and i remember the uh the parody of the death scene of the of the waynes uh, or the swains in this case and uh they're attacked and the uh, young boo swain is says bad bands <laughs> So, you know, it had some fun stuff in it. It actually parodied specific elements of Miller's seminal work. Right. And then there was a Happy Birthday Nat Rat, which beautifully uh, parodied. There was like a Batman anniversary issue. Okay. And it, it parodied that and, all, and actually parodied some of the specific elements of that as well. Then came Nat Rat the movie, which was just bad. It It's just not, it, you know, you, you got accustomed to some fun parody, and then this was just a phoned-in piece of garbage with some, a lot of the whole thing uh, surrounding, um, one of the key elements of the story was John Holmes Tower. Oh, God. Yeah, and you're like, what, why? It's... <laughs> And I, I unfortunately stuck forever in my mind uh, is the uh, the phrase uh, something about a, a shower of power from the head of Jerry Clower, and we'll see the end of John Holmes Tower. Jeez, why? See, that's the that's what I'm talking about, though. Like, yeah, you can do that, but <laughs> who's it for? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, is it for you? Who's enjoying this? Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, a lot of it was just, you know, somebody's own personal in-joke. It's like the Brown Lanterns or something. Right. And only you and I will get that. But, right. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was it was just something where there were high, was high expectation because of the earlier work that effectively wasn't delivered in the long run. Hubris. Yes. A lot of these books suffer from hubris. As in, uh, you know, from Free Enterprise, it's the height of hubris. It's the height of hubris. But I think I can do it. Are we going to have to do an entire episode on Free Enterprise? Is that... We may have to one day. <laughs> Just because it's it's so well, important. It's it so steeped in comics that it it won't be like we're jumping outside of where we're supposed to be. But it's also important to the... the I, I can't think of... I know you're going through and... and, and chronicling all of the you know all of the various movies and things that we've done but i don't know if there's another cultural touchstone that's more important and more informative on the mythology of this podcast than free enterprise <laughs> that's so true it, it it does speak volumes to this very show and our very lives i mean it does uh catherine uh, absolutely fell in love with it too, and uh, 
I can look on the, the screen there and I see myself and Steve. Right. Uh, I mean, and, you, that's and, the and thing. And you and I. As, yes. In, in your, and Rick and here. Roy and yeah. Eddie just, and Bobby and you and me and Steve and Old Man Hollywood. And it, they're all it, it it's it's a brilliant film. It really is. Exactly. Um, but that I think a lot of the bad news books probably stem from that period. Because, uh, as I say, you had a lot of parody books. I remember everybody was jumping on the parody bandwagon for a while there from the uh, the kind of fun uh, Secret Doors where it took Secret Wars and turned it into a game show. Yes. To uh, just some god-awful stuff like Spider-Mon. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously a... Um, supposed to be like a Jamaican Spider-Man. Then, as I say, you had your, your TNA publisher period. Um, oh, who was a Ground Zero comics was one of the worst. Uh, fielding all manner of titillation comics, including Widow, which was this generally depicted either very scantily clad or often even naked uh, mutant chick with uh, the, the flesh version of uh, the Iron Spider arms. Yeah. She had a, a set of four big, hairy, spike-ended tarantula arms and a pair of, like, pedipalps emerging from her cheeks to give her an even more spidery look. And that damn thing went on for freaking ever. These books went on way too long, by the way. All the books that we're talking about, as well as other, like, any book that would be considered, got got comic book runs longer than they ever should have. Oh, yeah, and another one was uh, Double Impact. Do you remember that one? Yes. Yes. I don't know if they're, how substantive, if at all, any of their books were. But, you know, when your fallback is uh, clothe the nude covers of uh, buxom brunettes with giant cable guns, you're bound to sell some comics. Right. All right, man. We've got to we, we, we've gone. I've let us go over without saying anything. Oh, yeah, because we were I'm on so a roll. I'm so used to hearing we're coming up on it ringing in my ears <laughs> after listening to nearly 90 episodes of the show. Well, do you want me? To, okay, here no, you go. Well, hey, Cole, we're coming up on it, so we got to wrap her up. God damn it! <laughs> but this was good. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this. I went into it knowing we could never touch upon all of the the bad news books, all the worst ones. But I wanted to illustrate that there are a lot of stones among the gems. Oh yes, there I, are. <laughs> you've got gems of every description. It's like a. a a smog treasure trove of, of gems out there. I mean, some of them are just like opals and quartzes and things like that. And some are diamonds and, or in the case of cinematic stuff, Tanzanite, but <laughs> a little throwback there to our Tanzanite age of comic movies. But then there were, and I suspect there still are these comics that are just bad. Bad. Yeah. And, and and the unfortunate thing is sometimes there's you know you you have a you have a you know a handful of gold and the, and then there's just a little bit of pyrite in there you got to get yeah. through <laughs> just a little bit 
Yeah, but you know, sometimes you find a big gnarly yellow gray hunk of shit on the beach and it's ambergris <laughs> and worth a fortune. Right. And sometimes you find a big gnarly hunk of shit on the beach and it's and it's Daffy Kadaffy. Yeah, I was gonna say, and it's just shit. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> All right, man. Well why don't you plug us up and we'll get out of here because it's time. And yeah, and apologies for the nature of these books, but they they are part of the history yeah. of comics. And sometimes there's ugly, uh, terrible parts of the. This is like the the bad, the bad, and the bad, plus the ugly. So uh, this is, uh, of course, Hey Kids Comics coming to you from the Jedi Cole universe at JediCole dot com. Uh, also on Podbean, I'm going to push very heavily to try to get um, this the rest of the show uh, the the back issue bins caught up since I've been working heavily with those and at the rate I'm going I'm only a few months away from getting into that last comic box I'm already almost finished with two boxes of back issues <laughs> yeah you are it's been crazy I, I'm loving it um, but we're going to um, Ideally, we'll have everything uh, getting back up to normal. I'm going to try to get the issues caught up on the main website. So uh, be sure and check us out on Podbean for now. And uh, we'll be uh, working diligently to get us uh, up and running on uh, the main site now that I'm getting my ass back in gear. And um, also... um, to my surprise, we are going uninterrupted uh, in the midst of COVID-19 and um, pointless vandalism of the uh, office building where the, the Dallas On Air studio is located. Uh, the Rancor Pit Live uh, has been uh, running live on the first and third Sundays of every month. Generally, these days, we're starting around 10.30 or 11 a.m. Central. That part of things it's been a little sporadic due to various technical difficulties and access and all kinds of stuff but um, just this last uh, Sunday we uh, if you look at the Facebook pages for uh, the Rancor Pit Live uh, again coming to you from DallasOnAir.com our Facebook page has the archive of the last several shows on the, the Rancor Pit the JCU live podcast or whatever Eddie called it years ago. <laughs> um, so you can be sure and check that out. I did not think we were going to have an episode last Sunday. Uh, turns out we were able to get access to the studio and I, I kid you not three and a half hours before the show, I created the entire show that you'll see <laughs> because I do my best work in the oh last minute. And on the third Sundays of every month, I have my other show, a live show, Isle of Toys, which uh, will precede the Rancor Pit Live. I'm working on uh, possibly getting uh, Jesse back to talk about the craziest, wildest, most insane, bizarre-ass toys ever seen, and uh, possibly uh, getting uh, Star Wars super collector Jeffrey Carlton on the show. Oh, Jeffrey! He'd been on the uh, Rancor Pit Live like six studios ago. Right. So, uh, yeah, again, be sure and check that out, first and third Sundays of every month. And I understand the first Sunday of every month, uh, the predecessor of the Ranker Pit Live is Figments, which is coming back after a brief hiatus, I do believe. That's fantastic. 
That's great. And, of course, you can find us on the socials at HK Comics Show. Um, and I'm going to leave you guys with this. Um, get out there and uh, spread that four-color love. And buy, col- yeah. and buy, collect, and enjoy your comics. We love you all. Um, and we'll be back next week with more of them Hey Kids comics. Say goodnight, Cole. Good night, everybody. And uh, I'll be bringing you some even more uh, archival memoirs in the weeks to come. That's right. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.